there are a lot of issues with with metrics for startup founders. I, I think the big distinction that, that Eric Reese made in, in his book, The Lean Startup, was between actionable metrics and vanity metrics. Right? And, and even if you are looking at just sales, the absolute dollar value of the revenue you brought in is not necessarily a meaningful metric. Right? What matters is the amount of dollars you're bringing in per day or per customer that you close. Um, you can be bringing in a lot of money per day, but as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you know that you can be profitable but still go bankrupt if, if the payment terms on that, that deal is 90 days instead of 60 days. Mm -hmm. um, so unless you really understand what are the primary growth drivers of your business and, and what's actually uh, keeping you in business, then it's very easy to fixate on the wrong numbers and it's very easy to fixate on the absolute value instead of the percentage or conversion rate and the simplest way i would say it is that for any entrepreneur out there who's listening you know if you put out uh, an a b test on your website you know version a version b and version a has a hundred people that signed up and version b that has a thousand people that signed up most uh entrepreneurs would go for version b in a second but if you only had 200 people go to that first website, that's 100 divided by 200. That's 50% of the people who came to that website signed up right, or paid perhaps. And if you had uh, 10,000 people come to the second version of that website, well, that's 1,000 over 10,000 and that's a 10% conversion rate. So I'd rather go with, I'd rather fund, you know, as somebody's put money into startups, I'd rather fund startup A here in this case, because that's a conversion rate. And money can buy you the traffic. If your conversion rate holds at 50%, I want a piece of that business. So looking at conversion rates, looking at um, really what drives your business, uh, that's more important than, than just saying like, yay, I closed a deal for $10,000. The Move Entrepreneur Evolved Podcast. Get on it. And we're back with a new episode of Moved Entrepreneur Evolved. And I'm super excited to bring on Tristan Cromer with Chromatic. How you doing, man? Hey, Jason. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I guess my Google. My Siri, Siri, Siri talking. So I guess other than them, it sounds like they're doing pretty good. Google's very aggressive about making sure you know all of the capabilities that Google has. So, so I guess though I don't run a perfect show. <laughs> I have an audience. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I'll Our audience is, is the honest. U.S. government, probably. I kind of like it when things happen like that because it just kind of releases the energy unless you just calm down a little bit. Anyways, we'll jump back in it. Um, so yeah, man. So how's the day going? Uh, it's going well here. Uh, you know, it's a little bit chilly here in San Francisco, uh, but uh, uh, the world keeps on turning. So uh, yeah, everything's good. How's San Diego? It's good, man. We had uh, pouring rains yesterday. Uh, we don't, you, you had mentioned when we were off, off air a little bit, you had said you'd been to San Diego. So you know that when the rain hits, like nobody knows what to do. <laughs> they kind of get all freaked <laughs> yes. out, you know? So yeah, had, uh, I noticed that when I moved to California, nobody knows how to drive in the rain, but you know, that's okay. It doesn't rain so often. So it's, it's, it's a minimal issue. It is. We were, um, Two days ago, we actually had uh, electricity shut down for eight hours, and I don't know if I've ever had that. And I, I felt like I was uh, organic for eight hours. <laughs> I was able to like do things that I didn't do before, so it all kind of worked out. <laughs> so you're, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I was uh, just just going to say I've lived plenty of places where we had to have a backup generator. So that's that's not entirely uncommon for me. That was um, that's kind of funny to say that. So yesterday I was like, OK, well, what are my options? I've got, you know, a thousand dollars of frozen meat and fish and all that stuff in my downstairs freezer. I'm like, what am I going to do? I was like, OK, I got to go get a generator. Or, you know, am I going to be taking this freezer to my brother's house? What am I going to do? We have a big barbecue. So I guess, you know, decisions that I didn't think I'd have to make. But anyways, I think that uh, that probably ties us right into startups, doesn't it? 
I suppose so. Uh, any decision you have to make is like, well, you're, I guess in that case, you're literally on a burning platform and you got to decide what to do with your resources before they expire. It's true. That's true. I thought um, I jumped right into uh, something that uh, was written. I paid attention and took, took a look at your blog a little bit. And um, I, I'd read something that you'd put in and it was about rock stars versus superstars. And we could muse all day on the subtleties that uh, separate rock stars from superstars. But what it boils down to is growth. Rock stars are perfectly happy being awesome where they are. Superstars are on growth trajectory. Throw them in a deep end and they will teach themselves how to swim. Kind of the same idea. You know, throw me out. I'm like a wolf. I come back leading the pack. What, what's your, you know, how do you, uh, how do you look at those two? Yeah, that's a paradigm that comes from um, the book Radical Candor. Um, and I think it's a, it's kind of a good thing to understand from a leader perspective that uh, kind of everybody's different, right? Uh, and people can change from day to day. They're not necessarily the same person yesterday that you were today. So if, if you've got a team member that uh, really was just a superstar on your team and was, you know, taking over functions uh, that, you know, they wouldn't be qualified to lead in a larger company. You now, as a startup or even an innovation project inside a larger org, if, if you've got those people and they're just hitting above their weight class, uh, you just got to recognize that sometimes they're not always going to be in that role. They might choose to be in that, that rock steady position of just saying, you know what, I like where I am. I'm, I'm leading an engineering team. It's doing great leave me here. Don't make me the CTO. Like, don't give me an additional position. So I, 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 I like that book a lot, actually. I recommend it um, uh, very much. And it's just a good thing to understand as a team leader um, that you can't just shove everybody in the deep end and expect them to swim. Some of those people just are happy lounging in the, uh, in the shallow end with a, a chill drink in the stereo. You think that that kind of... Um leads up to that there's just certain people that have that push compared to like just some other people or do you think it's like something that you inherit do you think it's something that you know rock star superstar there's definitely a difference between a rock star <laughs> i mean ish you know the 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 german word be, would be yine which is like yes and no at the same time right like there are I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of statistics, right? And you have those extremes that you're talking about. People who are just constantly growth people and they're, they've got the growth mindset and they're constantly learning, constantly learning, constantly learning, always trying to excel uh, almost to a fault. And you probably have some people who are always just like zero ambition, just want to want to sit there. But most people are somewhere in between those two things. In fact, most people are kind of in the bell curve shape in the middle. And again, people can change over time. So I don't think that some people are born to be entrepreneurs and other people are not. I think situations cause a lot of things. Um, we know even from the research that uh, the most common reason that people start businesses is not because they have a fantastic idea and they just have to pursue it because they're that passionate about it. The research suggests that the most common reason for starting a business is because your resume looks so weird that you don't think anybody's going to pay you the value that you're worth. So it's better to start your own business and pay yourself and have all that freedom um, rather than get paid less than what your resume uh, uh, really qualifies you for. Um, I certainly know that that's been the case in, in uh, for a lot of people I know, certainly for me, I've looked at my resume and been like, man, this looks weird. I, I was a musician for 10 years. I was in IT security for five years. Like who's gonna hire me and for what? Like my resume looks like a crazy zigzag. Uh, I think I saw to like me, looking backwards, food, yeah. food in something. I, I think yeah, I serve on the ice cream innovation board, actually. So it's like a lot of weird stuff on my resume. And uh, it may look like a crazy zigzag or a spiral going nowhere to some people. But to me, it looks like a straight line if I turn around and look backwards, just mm. for looking at it from the wrong angle. So a lot of people just look at that and say, you know what? People are not offering me the jobs that I can truly do. So let me make my own job. Um, I think that's part of what being an entrepreneur is all about. It's like, take a look at the resources you have and make do with what you've got. If that means you can get a job at a big company that you think will satisfy you and make you money, great. Uh, if 
can't and you think you can cobble together uh, uh, two sticks and start a fire, uh, go for it. Yeah, I think wow, that brings up a lot of like questions to people asking themselves why they actually started. And I think there may be some clarity there. I think, it, you know, an another reason is maybe people are just like, I want to go out and kind of do my own thing. You know, sometimes we just don't want somebody to tell yes. us what to do, you know, but I do like the idea that entrepreneurs, you know, they forge their own way, but kind of, I think that falls in line that entrepreneurs solve problems. Um, not so much solve uh, an industry, I guess you could say. They may end up in an industry, but maybe one of the reasons uh, entrepreneurs, I mean, looking back, I don't even know if I like have a resume. You know, it, it's, it's generate revenue and try to solve problems. And that kind of goes around yeah. all different things. Um, how did, um, you know, you mentioned that you would like metrics. And um, I was uh, looking through some of the stuff uh, that you had and as people start with startups, uh, what's a metric that you think that they follow that they shouldn't be following? Uh, I know I fell victim to that <laughs> in my first business. I, I was like, oh, I got to build all these systems. And I just maybe forgot that I needed to just focus on sales. <laughs> I mean, certainly that's true. I, I, there are a lot of issues with with metrics for startup founders i i think the big distinction that that eric reese made in in his book the lean startup was between actionable metrics and vanity metrics right and and even if you are looking at just sales the absolute dollar value of the revenue you brought in is not necessarily a meaningful metric right what matters is the amount of dollars you're bringing in per day or per customer that you close um you can be bringing in a lot of money per day, but as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you know that you can be profitable but still go bankrupt if, if the payment terms on that, that deal is 90 days instead of 60 days. Mm -hmm. um, so unless you really understand what are the primary growth drivers of your business and, and what's actually uh, keeping you in business, then it's very easy to fixate on the wrong numbers and it's very easy to fixate on the absolute value instead of the percentage or conversion rate. And the simplest way I would say it is that for any entrepreneur out there who's listening, you know, if you put out uh, an A-B test on your website, you know, version A, version B, and version A has a hundred people that signed up and version B that has a thousand people that signed up, most uh, entrepreneurs would go for version B in a second. But if you only had 200 people go to that first website, that's 100 divided by 200, that's 50% of the people who came to that website signed up right, or paid perhaps. And if you had uh, 10,000 people come to the second version of that website, well, that's 1,000 over 10,000, that's a 10% conversion rate. So I'd rather go with, I'd rather fund, you know, as somebody's put money into startups, I'd rather fund startup A here in this case, because that's a conversion rate. And money can buy you the traffic. If your conversion rate holds at 50%, I want a piece of that business. So looking at conversion rates, looking at um, really what drives your business, uh, that's more important than, than just saying like, yay, I closed a deal for $10,000. So, okay, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's a good number. But closing 60% of the deals that come in the door, that's a pretty good sales closing rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty strong. At least for B2B, right? Yeah, yeah, B2B, that's, that's pretty strong. Depends on where you're at in the pipeline. It's been pretty amazing how we can utilize funnels to kind of negate the, I guess you would say, uh, the hard closer mentality that we've had that was there for a long time. You know, we can do a lot of things to try to get somebody to that position before having to kind of rank their arm, I guess, to make a decision, right? Sure. I mean, I'm not a natural salesperson, so I've, I've never really tried the whole hard close approach anyway. And I, I would think that's much more appropriate for more, I guess, impulse buys. Mm -hmm. Most of the sales I've ever done have been in, in B2B or B2G. So uh, it's much more long-term. Uh, you can still look at metrics. You can still figure out what drives your sales process forward, but uh, you can't pressure you know, a 100,000 person company into buying your product because you still have to get approval from procurement, from legal, from the economic buyer, from the evangelist, from the users. There's too many people involved. That's just not going to work. At least I don't know it to work. 
it, I don't think it works on longevity. It's pretty exhausting too. And you, you <laughs> there's that too. And you got to have, I mean, when you talk about metrics, I think you would probably agree with this is like, and talk about superstars and things like that. You, you could bring in a superstar who becomes an absolute incredible closer, but, and you have metrics that are running at 60, 70%. And then that person leaves. And now you're, you are not running those metrics at all. And you don't have someone to turn that. So I, I think that opens up. More. Well, yes. Although I would say that in that case, in the situation you just described, that was not a superstar, right? Mm -hmm. That's somebody who is performing as an individual, but they are mm -hmm. not really exceeding in terms of their ability to grow the business. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody who is really a superstar for your company is creating a repeatable process. They're creating sales collateral. They're understanding and adjusting the funnel. They're understanding the pain points the customer has, the typical obstacles. They're debriefing and they're running retrospectives and uh, on every single sale. And they're writing those reports because hopefully they believe they're not gonna be the only salespeople there forever. Like they're not just there for the paycheck. They wanna grow the business. And that means creating a process that the next salesperson can follow. Right. So they should then be the senior salesperson or the head of sales mm. or the chief sales officer. So, so yes, I agree. Like we, we all, we all suffer from constraints. Right. But one of the things that I think is really, really great with my current team is that everybody has each other's backs and everybody is um, not overly process focused, but is aware of the need to have some redundancy and also frankly, just to take some vacation. And if you've got somebody in your team who just can't be allowed to take vacation because they're so critical, that is a single point of failure for your business that I would be very wary of. That opens up an interesting conversation because um, startups take a lot of energy and um, you know, startups that hire people, uh, the weight on that person that they're hiring is almost as strong on themselves as they are on that other person because you're, you've only got you know, you've got to perform, you've got to make it, you got to get it over the hump. Um, as you watch startups, and I know that you've spent a lot of time in that area, what, what do you see that when they do a startup like that, what is the first position do you see uh, that you found um, has been vital to that next, you know, it's, it's not your tax guy, <laughs> you know, it's like, I got to go generate oh, no. money. <laughs> I got to generate money to go give it to the tax guy. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that everybody always wants to hire is a chief of sales or a head of sales or a head of marketing. But I do think that's the hardest thing to, it's the hardest thing to hire for, mm -hmm. right? Because honestly, like nobody's going to care as much of the, as the founder. And I think it's, it's dubious to the extreme that you're ever going to be in a position where you can hire a head of sales unless you can figure out how to sell not just zero to one customers, but at least like one to 10 customers. So that, again, you know what the playbook is, you know what the pain points are, you have enough understanding of the customer that you can write a little bit of a sales playbook so that when the new head of sales comes in, they're not starting from scratch, I'm just trying to figure out what is this product that I'm trying to sell. Um, you know, the head of product needs to be part of sales calls. Uh, if you've got a, a, a head of product management, I mean, that person's got to be attending sales calls and learning what the product is, how to communicate it, what things resonate with the customers. I don't think the, the, the founder of a, a, an early stage venture where you've got three people in a garage can abdicate that responsibility so soon. So I'd rather, uh, I'd rather see people hire, um, skills where there are or positions where the task is more known first right so if you've got a head of engineering and you need additional people to build out what you've already validated okay do that if you are ready to hire salespeople, okay fine you do that but that means you have to know what the sales process is you know hire hire where there is less uncertainty because uh it is hard to hire true entrepreneurs that are willing to work with ambiguity and know how to manage it and deal with it. Uh, real entrepreneurs who are great at that stuff are busy starting their own businesses. They're not joining yours. So until you get some traction, until you get some scale, they're not ditching their own ideas to join your company. So I would, 
actually encourage you to build some team members, uh, not just kind of go it alone entrepreneurs who are, are ready to jump in and wing everything. Like it's not exactly who you need. Yeah. I, yeah. I've experienced that as well. I think um, that, that's an interesting topic to kind of go. I mean, find somebody that's of that position to relieve you of, a, of something else, um, a strength. Yeah. I think it was Mark Cuban who said, you know, when I hire someone, it's not just to get the job done. It's actually hiring someone to relieve stress off of me. And if you can relieve stress and create uh, momentum in some way, then not only have you created value, but you've also kind of taken that off my shoulders. And anybody that's ran a business knows that every stone that you can at least, <laughs> at least kind of move over, you then can yeah. kind of, I mean, though people are passionate about yeah. it, people want to get to a place where they use their entrepreneurial journey to spend time with their family, their friends. And, you know, that's the, that's the carrot, right? Build it up so you can do something with your life or so. I mean, there's serial entrepreneurs. In that sure. Way. Although some people just, yeah, some yeah. people just want to stay in there and, and, and work to know, but, but I think that's a very smart, I think that's a very smart point, but I, I guess we should also differentiate between finding a co-founder and finding an employee, you know, like, I very much uh, took that as, took the question as, yeah, who are you going to hire in your company? Yeah. If you're looking for a co-founder, I think we would, be, we would both probably throw, throw that advice out the window, right? No, hire somebody for ambiguity. You can take a role and grow into it. Yeah. Um, but very, very different positions. You had, you had talked about security that you would uh, work through. Um, in, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that was digital security or was that more like- Yes, IT security, yeah. Okay. Um, encryption, encryption, public key encryption mostly. Yeah, we have totally different <laughs> different solutions there. Uh, so encryption is that over the years, um, what, what is, and I always like to kind of say it's like the parlay of, of what you've learned and moved from there. You started to go into uh, a sense of, you know, more startups and things like that. But when you were doing more of the securities of IT and things, what were some of those skill sets that you were able to take into those startups that you either work with or your own entrepreneurial hmm. side, what, what did you bring from there um, into the new the future of your life, I guess, your journey of business? Yeah, that's, kind of, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really uh, thought specifically about that, but I did uh, wind up. So I, I was running a, a business unit um, and I was uh, wound up uh, running this business unit in the middle of the financial crisis, like when it hit and we had to cut quite a lot of headcount quite quickly. And so I wound up with kind of five different business cards, like literally five different business cards that, that I had for these different roles that I wound up running. And one of them was business unit manager. Another one was head of marketing. Uh, another one was head of our Vietnam operations. Another one was, was uh, I can't even remember, like board member of China, something like that. And uh, we just, we were resource constrained, like regardless of what size of the company you're in, like people always say startups are resource constrained, but regardless of the size of the company, like everybody's always resource constrained. So I wound up doing, in this case, a ton of marketing work. Uh, and I had some of those skills from the music industry as well. So, um, so that was something that I could leverage and grow more and learn a little bit more about how to do marketing in a B2B context. And, and that's something I've certainly carried on with me. But the thing I learned from scratch, one um, of many skills in addition to how to run SharePoint, which I have no idea why I wound up doing that, but uh, was for people that don't know usability work. What, what, what SharePoint for people that don't know what that is? Uh, it's just a um, internal company software for running uh, pretty much anything. It's, it's kind of an all-purpose Microsoft tool to put up in internal web pages that have various different functions on it, uh, from storing and sharing files to communicating to I created an automated business card ordering system for the company in SharePoint. Again, no idea why I had to do that. It's just nobody else was available. Okay, so but uh, the usability testing was the, was the most interesting skill that I picked up that uh, usability testing and design that I had no understanding of starting with, but we did not have anybody to do that. And the products we were creating, uh, since one of my roles was, was as a product manager, the products we were creating were un unusable, right? Just, you couldn't 
understand the organization of the menu items. Mm. There's very poor information architecture just to do certain things were was very, very counterintuitive how, how they structured it. And so I had to go in and say, like, I, I don't know how to do this, but I know this is wrong. Like this button should not be on the top left to hit submit. Like it, it was it wasn't quite that bad, but it was some stuff where it was really like this just doesn't make any sense. Sure. So uh, I wasn't doing full on usability testing at that point, but I was learning how to wireframe. And I said, OK, here's found a wireframing tool. Do it like this. Put it out there this will be a little bit better and we get a little bit of feedback and, and do some iteration on it and that skill turned out to be really really useful when i went into silicon valley and uh when i, I was sitting in dog patch labs uh, working on a startup and uh, my friend ming was there late at night and he started running usability tests on me and that's when that skill kind of truly blossomed and i was like oh wait a minute not only do i have some background at this but this is critical for building products, like absolutely a, a differentiator. And especially when it comes to, to web apps, you know, like if you think about Instagram and Facebook and all those things, it's all usability is such a critical part of it. Um, and I think it's gonna be a critical part in the, the DeFi space too, when, when they get around to it. Mm -hmm. And that, that's just also because of time. You know, we don't, we don't have the time to, you know, go and stay in one software and try to figure out everything that they can do. It's, it's probably breaking down. What are the things that are most important? How can I get you from point A to point B as fast as possible? And then actually experience it. I mean, you look at you know, even like Instagram or whatever. It's like, a, it's just literally some, <laughs> some click, click. I mean, there's not really much to it. Um, how have you, uh, how, how have you found yourself and again, I'm just going to tap into kind of the security side because like there's always attack. I mean, it's like there's never this never in sure. sense of attack and things like that. But as you go through that, how did, how did you find ways to say, look, I'm not going to need this? Because I think that uh, security is like we got to put up walls for things that we don't know, that we don't know, that we don't know, that we don't know. Right. But in, in moving forward, I guess in, in more of the stuff we were just talking about, sometimes you're looking to eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. <laughs> I, uh, I want to make sure I understand the, the question you're saying. Like, uh, I think you're saying that there's a trade-off between usability and security, right? Sure. Like, if you make it very easy to, to use, you would be taking out the password prompt, right? You wouldn't be putting it in. And then you wouldn't certainly wouldn't have a second screen to put your two-factor authentication in. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what yeah. you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you, with security, there's almost a, a never-ending, like, it, it, it's, kind of, it's an attack. I mean, I don't want to say it's an attack, but I mean, you have this thing that's attacking you. When you're moving something forward, you're trying to eliminate things for the pure fact of just simplicity, keep it simple, stupid, you know, that whole thing. But with security and IT and things, um, you can build just for lack of words or just bringing words up, but you could build wall after wall after wall after wall after wall because you're trying to build a wall from stopping something from happening. You know, yeah, and you might unintentionally prevent real people who should be inside the inside. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, I, I think that that is true, but there is a uh, there they're not entirely exclusive to one another. Like there are things you need to do to make it a little harder for uh, for attackers to get in that will slow down or create friction points for a normal user. But um, uh, for example, if you make your security system so robust that you have to use a, a password that is 28 characters and there are no words in it and it's got all the special characters and things like that. Um, if you do something that is that robust, what happens, what typically happens is that people will write it down on a post-it note and stick it next to their computer. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a worse security flaw than just letting them choose a simple password that maybe has a couple words in it, right? So uh, really formal security researchers will sometimes ignore the usability aspect and well, they'll just say, well, that's, that's a human error. Like that's a user error, like I can't deal with that. But it is something that has to be acknowledged in um, when you build products. And again, like I think the decentralized finance space uh, is, is really interesting for that 
because that is just some of the worst user experience I've ever seen in my life. It's just impossible. Like if you want to invest uh, in, I don't know, Kanoko coin, something like that, like one of these random coins, like you have to go on to Coinbase and like sign up five ways to Sunday in order to buy some Ethereum. And then you got to set up a MetaMask wallet and then you got to transfer the Ethereum into your MetaMask wallet. And then you got to figure out how to use your MetaMask wallet. And you got to, uh, well, now it's in your MetaMask wallet. So you're responsible for your password. Now, if you lose it, your money is gone forever. Right. So now you go online and you buy uh, one of these, these fancy, like indestructible places to write your heart, uh, your password down. That's like, I got one for, for a trial here. That's like a metal block. And you have to take out this like punch codes sort of screwdriver thing to like imprint your passcode onto this steel block that you're now going to save or put in a safety deposit box somewhere or something like that. It is the craziest user experience for the sake of security that I have ever had. Like I can't imagine anybody enjoys it. And it's so complex that it's introducing a massive amount of, of user errors. And I think the DeFi space is phenomenally interesting. I think it is the future of the web, but but man, are they deliberately making it as, as hard as possible? Like, yes. And all that stuff has to be solved in order for decentralized finance to, to go mainstream and for us to truly reap the benefits of the blockchain. So my little rant on DeFi. Yeah, that would be like, you went to a, a local store or whatever and you had to go through like, nine doors just to go get the Snickers bar. <laughs> you know, you, it would be more akin to saying like, you want to buy something at Walmart? Well, first you got to go to Target. Okay. Then you got to get a coupon. Then you got to go to Chuck E. Cheese, put that coupon into the claw machine, use the claw machine to get the stuff there, sell the stuff there to uh, the kid down the street. And the kid down the street is going to go into Walmart and steal the thing you were originally looking for for you. Like it's that crazy. Yeah, I, and that's a, a, obviously a conversation that's just coming so fast to our society. I mean, it's, I mean, how many people are getting Oculuses for Christmas and how many people are, you know, getting Bitcoin for Christmas? I mean, you know, or an NFT for Christmas or something. I mean, it's just, I think, what was it? Nike just came out with a shoe. Um, that was their big, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, announcement this last week you know they're they're coming out with something in, in nfts and it's moving so fast well, they're coming out with digital shoes right for avatars essentially yeah yeah yep. yeah i mean that's that's a much different domain i don't really know as as much about you know what the metaverse is doing right now i, I do think it's a trend that'll be here eventually but i don't i don't see it coming quite as fast as decentralized finance like there's a massive economic incentive to move to decentralized finance because our financial system is so antiquated and so expensive to, to do transactions. And DeFi isn't there yet, but it's it's on the way. Whereas for stuff like Oculus, uh, you know, like you just said, you have to buy the gloves. You got to buy the headset. The headset's still a little wonky and feels weird. You also have to have space in your house that's like large enough for you to move around and not yeah. kill your shins. Um, and that's just, I think that's just a really big barrier to entry. I think it's going to take a long time for that to, to get, you know, to ready player one stake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did. And I've had these conversations before, but, you know, it just reminds me of when kind of the internet was kind of introducing itself. Just everything is so weird and you feel off and you're like, what the heck is this going to do? And I think that we're all in that space right now. In a sense. There's so much innovation. I think that that um, kind of ties into my next statement that I had here. And it, uh, you had a thing up here and it says, uh, fighting the status quo, apathy and the status quo are slow, slowing everything to a crawl. The system is slowing you down without clear priorities and management support innovation efforts because secondary to putting out fires and checking email. Um, th this is an actually interesting conversation because uh, we are in a fast innovating world right now. And in a fast innovating world, uh, repeatable processes uh, may be eliminated in three months, you know, because the new system or process 
you know, operating procedure is going to change. How are you seeing startups adapt to that? Just that feeling of uncertainty or maybe not, you know, trying to go to the old status quo, but maybe not even being able to do that anymore. I, I don't think it's as much of a problem for startups. I mean, and that's kind of what startups are there for is to go into the unexplored areas, like uh, find the spaces where there are gaps in the regulations where you can do something a little bit more interesting. I mean, that, that statement that you're reading is very much like from my, like my, uh, like I have worked with a ton of accelerators and a ton of startups and I've been an entrepreneur, but more recently I've been really working with large organizations. And I think large organizations are actually really fascinating um, because if you're a startup and you find something that's you know 0.01% incrementally better, you're you're probably dead in the water, right? Like you're you're not getting very far. Like you you really have to find a niche and and either disrupt the status quo or, or find a little niche where you can survive and thrive. But but 0.01% is not going to do anything. But if you go into a large organization and you improve the efficiency of the shipping system by 0.01%, mm -hmm. you are actually making a significant impact, not only on the PL, but in the amount of tons of carbon dioxide that are going into the atmosphere every day. Um, you can make some really small incremental moves that have massive impact. And I, I'm not talking about the big disruptive ideas of companies disrupting themselves. I'm just talking about like get operations a little bit, a little bit faster. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there there is that kind of organization which strives to strike down innovation inside uh, inside organizations, and that is the status quo. Um, the same thing does exist for startups, I think, to some degree, where if you're a startup and you wanted to disrupt the financial institutions like yeah it's hard because there's regulation and if you want people to buy your nft like the reason you have to go through five different steps and, and five different exchanges to do that is because there is regulation uh, here in the united states there's regulation about know your customer you want to get somebody to pay ten thousand dollars on your uh, nft um the government wants to know who exactly that is and make sure that you're not selling drugs mm -hmm. right? for, for good reason. Like that regulation is not meaningless. It's, it's there for a reason. It may be a little old and antiquated, but it is there for a cogent reason. And startups just do not have the resources to battle effectively in that area. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually much easier for somebody like Square who recently announced a um, an open source entry into the decentralized finance space. It's, it's much easier for them to go into that space because they have the resources to, to back it. Whereas a very big company, um, they can really push and pull and twist and look into what's possible with the regulations, work with the regulators. They just have a lot more resources than, than you or I sitting uh, alone in the garage would be able to do. Not to say it's impossible, but it's a lot harder. You also can probe current clients to beta what you're coming out with next. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge advantage. It can be fantastic. Like being an, an innovator inside a large company does give you certain things like, oh, I've got a client list of yeah. several hundred million people. Mm -hmm. um, but you can also have organizational barriers which prevent you from getting access to that list because that is the sales person, sales team's data and you are in the product development organization and they don't want to share. So you can have a lot of silliness as well that creates those, those barriers to entry even inside your organization. But um, you know it's possible to kind of work around the water cooler and, and figure out a solution to, to many of those situations. Yeah, you had brought something up and I, you know, I was taking a look at all your blog and things like that. And that was want to disrupt your industry, you know, was a statement that you had even been in there. And maybe that's a question, do you want to disrupt your industry? And um, I think this brings up an interesting conversation for entrepreneurs is, you know, do you go the route or I guess we could propose this question is, do you go the route of the business that I want to go create? Am I going to disrupt a current running 
solution, like the car, Tesla disrupted the way it is. The, the, the four wheels didn't change, right? Kind of, even though maybe there's not like a Porsche or something. Or do you go in and you create um, something that's just so different? Do you try to be so different? What are you finding um, that is more successful in today's market? Taking something that's already around or trying to come up with something totally unique? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I, I, I do think there are still spaces where you can do something really disruptive and creative and unique. But I also look at many of the things that we consider uh, manifest innovations that were just ahead of their time and really uh, amazing innovations. And I'm like, yeah, we actually had those things before. You know, okay, Tesla is an electric car, but as you said, we had cars. It, it still has four wheels. I, I think it's a great car, but it's still a car. Mm -hmm. Twitter is essentially a postcard. Like it, it's a public postcard posted on a bulletin board, but it's not actually that far removed from a postcard. In fact, that's why it had that character limit is because that's about the amount of space you need to write on a postcard. Um, a lot of the stuff in finance, it, you know, the blockchain folks are going to say that it's a radical innovation. It's completely different. It's destructive. And, and yes, it is all of those things, but they are also replicating existing financial institutions almost to a T. They're dealing with problems of trust. They're dealing with reputation uh, issues. Those things have been solved in the real world. Uh, they wanna do it in a decentralized way. Great, awesome. I hope it's gonna bring down costs and be incredibly impactful. But it would be, uh, it would be flat out incorrect to say that those things that are being built are 100% uh, new. Most human needs, most human needs are relatively static. The basic needs that people are trying to do are the same. We want to transact. The difference now is I want to transact with somebody halfway across the world rather than someone here. And I'm sick of paying banks uh, $200 in fees to move my money from here to there, right? That's the problem decentralized finance is fixing is it's going to cost a fraction of that. Maybe it'll cost 25 cents ultimately. But the need was there already. So yeah. I, I prefer to focus on the real human need and solve it creatively with technology, solve it in a new way with a new business model. You know, if it's a product now, make it a service. Uh, there was that company down uh, in South America, I, I can't remember the name of it, but they, they sold cement as, as a service instead of as a product, hmm, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. Yeah. It's not like they were renting the cement, but um, their value proposition became much more about delivering cement within a specific timely window mm -hmm. when it was needed mm -hmm. rather than just selling the product and then having it sit around the construction site for a long period of time. Yeah. So if you, if you got a product, turn it into a service. You've got a, a service, turn it into a product. If you've got a product, turn it into a platform. Um, I think those are interesting things. Those are business model innovations. The human needs are probably going to be pretty constant, uh, at least until we upload to the metaverse or whatever. I mean, what yeah. do they say? Nothing's changed, uh, you know, under the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're I mean, we're, we're still hardwired. We yeah. The wetware is still the same, right? You still yeah. want to play your guitar and watch a good Bruce Lee movie. You know, same thing. Oh, over good call. That's <laughs> no, true. Those, those natural needs of, of our own personal needs. And that kind of dives into some things on personal sides, but, you know, definitely we, we, we need those as humans, you know, we, you know, part of not only wanting to do, you know, podcasts, I do this podcast and kind of, you know, keep it going. I enjoy it. The other part of it was a selfish side that was like, I'm not seeing the people that I'm, that I, you know, the events I'm not going to, the people that I'm not connecting with, and, you know, sure. just having the ability for me to sit down with you and have a, a cool conversation for an hour and change. And, you know, most of the people I have a podcast with, I do my best to create a relationship with. And with this, within an intimate hour, you know, we would have been sitting next to each other at a coffee shop or maybe at a yeah. event or something like that. We kind of get to, you know, get an idea of a feel of each other and understand, you know, where we come from. And then, you know, maybe you see each other another time. So I think there's innovation that's happening. You know, Zoom opened that conversation. I, I use- uh, Yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, as this is kind of, you know trans uh, transitioning in change 
um, there's a couple of things that come to mind as you brought up like DeFi and things like that is, is removing those um, barriers, uh, the barriers of entry to um, inputs and outputs, I guess, make it as simple as possible. But I remember when um, I owned my e-commerce business and uh, when we wanted to sell internationally, we would, I would use a, uh, like a hub, this lady, she started a business. And what we would do is she would actually go on and all of her clients would order the product directly from her, but off of my website. And then what she would do is she would actually take all the shipments to her. She'd make a percentage of it. And then she would take Prop on shipping, this. Yeah. You remember those days? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then she would take on the risk. And the, the, the another one that comes to mind was uh, uh, the other one that came to mind was uh, paying uh, some staff around the world. And I was like, okay, I'm going to pay uh, using PayPal. And, you know, you'd have your staff paying, you know, 3% or whatever the percentage was at the time. And, you know, you're gosh, gosh man, why is, why is the employee need to pay this percentage? And so now as a business, I got to pay for it. And then TransferWise, um, I don't know if you've heard of them or Wise. Yes, I know TransferWise very well, Estonian company. And TransferWise came in and basically said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and, for anybody who doesn't understand, they just basically take the currency, they control the concert currency exchange, and then basically, you know, bank the money for you, and then they basically send it out. And I think that you're yeah. seeing this progression of figuring out how to knock down these walls through business and innovation. And, and really that's as fast as we can get something to somebody is, is, um, is really all that we're really looking for. Sure. I, I think TransferWise is a great example of both something that is innovative, but again, the need was always there. And TransferWise is essentially uh, and you'll, uh, your listeners who are more familiar with the finance space will have to forgive me because I'm sure I'm picking the wrong uh, technical term, but it's just a clearinghouse, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. doing the same thing that there, there are financial institutions that do that just between banks. What TransferWise have done is they've disintermediated, in that case, the banks. They are still as a centralized authority, so it's not true decentralized finance, but they have this kind of... Uh, appears to be almost peer-to-peer -peer way to send money uh, around the world. And then the next step to that is going to be uh, moving it on, on chain somewhere. But the need is still there. It's still the same need. We can still call it innovative, but it's grounded. It's grounded in the things that we need for day-to-day. -day. And I think many of, the, many of the best innovations are grounded in what human beings truly need that is actually going to make us a little bit happier, a little bit saner uh, in these crazy times, even if it's something as simple as uh, uh, using Zoom backgrounds, animated Zoom backgrounds to express our personality during the pandemic. I, I had to restart my computer uh, from, from scratch, so I've, I'm, I've got my default background on here. But I remember when the when the pandemic started, I was like, oh, I can't tell what everybody's thinking. And uh, everybody in my team started using their backgrounds to kind of express where they were. Uh, you know, some people would put on that. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. I don't remember the original thing, but it's like the dog that's sitting in hell and there's flames everywhere around it. Uh, you know, like when you see that screen, you're like, oh, all right. I guess, uh, I guess Kenny's in a little bit of a mood today, but that's okay. Like at least now I, I can read the body language now. It's not just yeah. this little square on the screen. Well, or it's maybe like you it's don't these little to, simple things. Or maybe you don't need to read the body language because I got it right behind yeah. me. Exactly, and, right? Now, yeah. now it's there. Now I can see it when I, when I used to be able to just look across the, yeah. uh, the room to see you. But the, these are the things that, that can make a lot of a lot of impact. Um, so don't don't discount the the basic human need and make sure as an entrepreneur we know what that is. I think a conversation that comes up with TransferWise and I wish I could remember the service that I that I used just the name of it because um, you did the transactions. It wasn't that the difficulty wasn't happening, and I think that's the same thing with TransferWise. Um, like you say, it's like a you know clearinghouse, but. I think what TransferWise did and what that company did is that what they did is the perception that you're not dealing with the issue is what they did. You know, they still have to make hmm. an exchange. They got to do all that stuff. But what they did is they kind of put a wall in between it and said, it's easy. Don't even worry about it. Compared to PayPal, yeah. you're going to see all of the fees that they give you. They're going to maybe hold your money. 
maybe transfer wide still has to do that, but they figured out a way to perceive to you that it's not happening. And, you know. Sure, yeah. Square, I think does the same thing. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with their technology, but uh, I know when I load something onto my cash app, it's instantaneous. And I'm pretty sure that it's not instantaneously happening in the back background, mm -hmm. but they've made it look instantaneous to yeah. me and I can spend it immediately. So great. What do I care what happens in the background? Wizard of Oz, as far as I'm concerned, like that's, that's a great, great way to reduce friction and get users fast. In uh, yeah, I mean, that was the first thing that kind of came to mind when you started kind of talking about like the clearinghouse. And I was like, wait, there's the work still being done. It's just kind of, uh, putting a building in between just saying, look, it's not happening. Look the other way, <laughs> we'll handle friction for you. And then you get to kind of just, you know, as long as it's consistent, you know, because once it finds yeah, it's sure. not being consistent, then you basically go, well, that thing's all jacked up and it's not working, but if they can hide that, you know, really well, I don't think that, uh, you know, I, I think that our, I guess you could say our, again, going back to human needs, I, I want less friction. I, I want less struggle. And if you can take that off of my mind, then you have yourself a business. Absolutely. It's back to your kind of Mark Cuban comment of, yeah, you make this slightly easier for me and take something off my mind and you can have my money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I noticed also uh, kind of looking at uh, your, your resume here. Uh, <laughs> one of them is you were the, uh, the president of the salsa club. I bet we could go in any direction for that one. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought well, there, there was a need. So there was a need. they needed a president and you were ready to salsa. Um, I, I founded that, that salsa club. Oh, you did. <laughs> That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. People wanted an excuse. That, well, I'll tell you what the need was there is that people wanted an excuse to meet each other. Mm. Like, it didn't have a whole lot to do with, with salsa. It had to do with, you know, people in college wanting to meet other people that they might be attracted to. Oh, yeah, that's, it was um, 2000, right around probably that time, 2007, 2008. That was when the four-hour work week came out, right around, maybe a little later. But um, it, I think he did the whole salsa thing. And you know, obviously his thing was you can just go for a short period of time. Um, but he was, he was heavy and I think it was salsa, right? I have no idea. Honestly, I'm not that great of a salsa dancer. So I, I founded it. I loved it. I thought it was fun. Uh, and then I left and I haven't done salsa dancing in a few years. <laughs> no clue. Well, I do have one that you have on here. And I think this is kind of the opposite. Um, you played chess. Yeah, I love yeah. chess. And so um, I thought that this was an interesting topic because I think that, you know, strategy and application and patience and things like that what are some things that you take um, or maybe would encourage people to play chess or you know what is your correlation between business and chess if, if there's any um i think i i i actually gave a, a talk to my team about the strategy of chess and, and what parts of it are analogous and there there are some things that are analogous but uh, chess is very very different from entrepreneurship like the only analogy to chess and entrepreneurship would be maybe if you're playing chess with a limited number of pieces and you can't see the opponent. Um, entrepreneurship is, is maybe more like poker where you're, you're placing a lot of small bets and figuring out where to double down as you get more information as the cards are slowly revealed, maybe a little bit more like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but honestly, the whole point of entrepreneurship for me is taking a look at your resources, whether that's your athletic ability or your mental ability or, or just what stuff you have around the house that you can cobble together to form a new product um, and figuring out what game to play. Like what games am I good at? What are the rules? Can I invent my own game? because mm -hmm. really, really great entrepreneurs can, yeah, jump into an existing market and, and figure out how to, how to beat the competition. But uh, the, the best entrepreneurs, and I'm certainly not one of them, they figure out new games to play. Like they, they create new paradigms. Um, that's, that's really fascinating. That's when you really, really set the rules of the game yourself and invite other people to play. And you're on the home turf. Mm -hmm. that's that's really really interesting so i i do recommend people play chess it keeps your mind sharp it's fun um 
I don't really do it for any other reason than that. I mean, the best AI are way better than any humans at chess nowadays. Uh, so you're not going to do it just because, but it's a fascinating game. It does teach you a lot of really critical thinking strategy focus. Uh, you have to focus. You have to be able to follow a logical train of thought down, you know, five, 10, 12 steps and understand the possible consequences. So you have to do scenario planning and you also have to make decision trees and prune decision trees because uh, human beings cannot follow 12 different uh, steps down every single possibility on a chessboard. It's, it's not possible. Uh, but what you can do is you can quickly prune a tree and say, well, I have these three possible moves that look reasonable. The other 20 I'm throwing out immediately because it's just totally unreasonable. And now let me follow those a couple more steps. And okay, let me throw away these two. And now I'm down to two. And now let me follow those all the way down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that sort of thinking where you are constantly evaluating your options based on some heuristics and eliminating, uh, eliminating some options and following them to the end. That's a very good skill to have. Um, there's no reason why you shouldn't want to develop it, but maybe if you're an entrepreneur, also uh, learn poker. Yeah, and poker is sometimes you don't want to show all your hands. <laughs> well, you um, not really for that, just for more the strategic betting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I think a lot of entrepreneurs do make a mistake in that they put all their chips in one uh, pot and it's the first hand of the night and that's a mistake Um, you keep playing you keep playing you keep betting a little bit on different hands until you know you have something that's really solid Um, yeah you can bluff and all that but you can't can't get very far bluffing in in the land of innovation eventually you got to show a product even elizabeth holmes eventually had to show her cards and i don't think she's going to come out of that one uh, too well yeah so you know, and you can't put all the chips on. I mean, as you obviously evolve your, as you evolve business, um, it's kind of like the, you ever play um, either blackjack or craps or whatever, whatever you, you ever do the old strategy, like if you're in Vegas and you're like, okay, I have a, you know, $200 or whatever. And then you start playing. And then as you win, let's say I want a hundred dollars, you do the old, uh, put 10, $10 chip in my pocket and you kind of forget about it. <laughs> you start kind of stash this little stash. And next thing you know, you got this here, and then you're then you have to make this decision, right? Um, have I taken enough in my pocket that I just want to walk away, or did I just really have a savings account for me to take another risk? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although the safest thing maybe is all the real above. gambling is is not to play. Like, don't go to Vegas, don't gamble because the odds are de facto against you. Like that is not a smart way to make money. Right? Maybe yeah. an entrepreneur, yeah, find a game <laughs> where you know the rules <laughs> and the rules are in your favor rather than stacked against you. I, I think that's probably why I always liked craps though. Cause it's kind of like, it's that one game where it's like, everybody kind of has this feeling of winning, you know? Cause you just like, you're on, everybody's on, you know? It's, it's more of a, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, that's, that's entertainment. Don't. A dopamine run. I, I noticed another thing yeah, too. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I noticed another thing too, and this is kind of an interesting conversation because as you work with startups, as you um, as as you evolve uh, as an entrepreneur, as we've obviously talked through this whole conversation, um, you, you have uh, things that are being thrown around, and, and I, I place them in different areas. But interesting to hear kind of um, your output on this is, you know, we have coaching, we have training, and we have consulting. And so, you know, where, where do you see this whole world of coaching, training, consulting, you know, are you, do you see, you know, consultants trying to become coaches and, you know, I've, I've worked with coaches and consultants and training and things like that. Um, but what's your thoughts on how we're evolving in business, um, especially for startups, because, you know, there's this, there, there's coaching, um, but the consulting might be just one individual thing. What's your thoughts on that? I, I think of the coaching you were describing is more like executive coaching or startup coaches who kind of coach you how to run the team, lead the team, and also professional advancement coaches. Um, I'm not quite as familiar in that area. We, we do do coaching in, in my company, but it's very much for innovation teams, and it's, it's kind of a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about uh, rapid experimentation. Um, so like I said, I have worked with a, a large number of accelerators around the world. Um, and I think coaching is a really, 
really critical thing to get teams moving very, very quickly and running rapid experimentation every week. Uh, I think that's the best way to succeed as a startup. Um, it's, and going back to poker, it's placing a lot of little bets really rapidly and then doubling down when you see something is working. Um, much better strategy in general than just going for a big bang launch where you, you have one chance to succeed and if it fails, you're out of money. Um, don't do that, wouldn't recommend it. But um, I think coaching, you know, like anything serves, um, serves a need, like the type of executive coaching you were talking about. I think particularly now here in this pandemic, a lot of people just need somebody to, to talk through things with. Uh, they, they're not being able to go to those networking events and get a second set of eyes and a really honest opinion and assessment of where they are, where their business is. Um, I would maybe recommend to any entrepreneur uh, who's listening to this, um, I, I wouldn't recommend you spend a lot of money on consultants. Consultants, the primary job is to do something for you. A coach is really kind of guiding you to do the thing for yourself. Uh, but more than that, I would probably, you're a startup, you don't have a lot of money. Like go find the free stuff first, go find a peer group, go find five other entrepreneurs, join the entrepreneur organization. Um, there are a lot of these peer support groups that can provide a lot of value for nothing. Um, I mean, my own team, we make a, a good living doing innovation inside large organizations and governments. We do the startup stuff for free when we can, right? Because we know you all don't have a lot of money. So find the free resources, use my office hours, go to the entrepreneur organization. Um, don't be shy and ask for help. I think that's the ethos from Silicon Valley. That's when I moved here. It was the thing that struck me the most was that you could call up the CEO of a relatively large organization that's making tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And they might just respond and have a coffee with you and try and help you out. Um, so don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, get a second set of eyes. It doesn't need to be an expert. Just having a second perspective to ask you the dumb questions that you might have forgotten to ask you yourself is incredibly valuable. Even if it's something as simple as like, are you really sure that's your customer segment or what do they actually want? Why are they buying this for you? Or why do you think they should be buying this from you? Those dumb questions are invaluable for entrepreneurs and they're pretty much free. So go get them. You have a line that's here that says, what is an innovation ecosystem? I thought that I would open the door a little bit to that. You know, you have a healthy ecosystem. What What is your response on on uh, innovation ecosystem? Um, an innovation ecosystem is, um, in in my definition, it's basically the environment that entrepreneurs uh, inhabit. And so if you're a startup and you're here in Silicon Valley, there are certain environmental factors that make things easier or harder for you. We have a really good venture capital uh, ecosystem here. So there's, there's a lot of money. Uh, there's also a lot of skills. There's a lot of trust. There's no fear of failure in Silicon Valley. If you fail, that's basically a, a plus on your resume. If you live in uh, Tokyo and you fail as an entrepreneur, that's, that's not going to be looked upon too well um, when you're applying for your next job. So that's a very different environment. If you are in um, Serbia, they don't have as many venture capitalists. There's not as much money flowing through there. If you're in Dubai, you got plenty of money. Uh, not so many people with engineering skills in that environment. So the ecosystem is just the environment that we inhabit and the landscape that we have to thrive in. And again, that can uh, most ecosystems are have some pros and so some cons. And uh, in my context, that same thinking and that same framework applies to large organizations as well that are large enough to essentially have their own ecosystem. And when we're working with those, we similarly have to understand what are the barriers, what are the what are things that are helping and what are the things that are hindering. Uh, that way we can start to change the environment to make it a little bit friendlier. Um, so I've, I've done that with, uh, I've done that with uh, geographic ecosystems. We did a, created a, an accelerator manager training program in Vietnam that was funded by the government of Finland. I think it was Finland. Um, that was many years ago. Um, that was something to get the right level of skills in that ecosystem to help boost entrepreneurship. And I do the same thing now with large organizations and governments. What, um, 
I do have to go shortly. Yeah, all good. I was actually going to get you wrapped up. I like to kind of keep it wrapped late. Up. It worked out perfect. <laughs> I literally was like, cool. cool. Um, awesome. Thank you. No, yeah, definitely. I try to keep it around the same times. Um, in that, I guess that that kind of opens the door. And um, what, what do you think it is? And you talked about DeFi, things like that. Um, people do open up and kind of talk about coaching. These are things that are, um, you know, new, new, in a, I don't want to say innovative, but the new ways that they're doing it is a new way. What are you seeing watching startups at these levels of areas of interest that, um, that you're seeing on the forefront? I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure I understand your question there. Like where, where's the most interest coming from? Yeah, where going to most of the interest coming from in startups today. I mean, I, I see a lot of stuff in, in the DeFi space for sure. Um, again, I'm, I, it's, it's hard to say, but I'm probably not the best person to ask because I have so many people kind of coming inbound and talking to me about B2B and kind of large corporations. Um, and I've been stuck inside for the last two years, like pretty much everybody else, not really going to a lot of networking events. So I don't feel like I have a lot of judgment, but I do see just a phenomenal amount of activity in the DeFi space. That's, that's both awesome and terrifying at the same time, because there's a lot of really great things going on and there's just a lot of scams and frauds. And, you know, when both of those things come together, you, you know that something is going on that's worth taking a look at. So I would check out the DeFi space if I was starting a company today. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Tristan, I appreciate your time. It's been a blast. Where, where can people uh, find you? Uh, sure. Um, uh, every, you can always find me on LinkedIn, just Tristan Cromer, but uh, my website is at chromatic.com. It's chromatic with a K. Um, you can always just Google me, but I'm, I'm pretty easy to find about. If you are an entrepreneur, you're really more than welcome to take our early stage office hours. They're free. We always try and help out when we can. Uh, when we've got time, it's where we love to spend our time. Um, and if you're a larger organization, you can hit me up there at chromatic.com as well. well. I appreciate you coming to the Moved Entrepreneur Evolve podcast. It's been an awesome experience getting to know you and everybody's going to learn a lot from you. Thank you so much, my friend. Awesome, Jason. A pleasure to meet you. Uh, I hope you have a good day. If you like this episode, make sure you smash the like button and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just like Nike is to athletes, Moved is to entrepreneurs.